Amen. You may be seated. Well, after a brief and unexpected absence last Sunday, it's good to be back. The road uh, 38, the road we normally come down from Big Bear, is uh, still closed, I think. And um, it is uh, uh, unknown when it will reopen. So we had to go back, come down the long way today. Uh, Well, a little longer, not a lot longer. One thing I did learn, though, last Sunday, as we had to attend a church up in Big Bear, do you know there is no, there are no Reformed churches in Big Bear? It's a desert. I mean, there are a lot of churches, but as far as for the Reformed faith goes, it's a desert. So we ended up going to a church. There is nothing that will make you appreciate Reformed worship like going to, well, I won't name the church. Uh, But uh, even if you struggle with some of the psalm tunes, a couple of tunes today were not all that familiar, but you can kind of pick them up after a few times. One thing I noticed about the music that they played, it was not written for congregational singing. It was written to be performed by a group. It was not written for congregations to sing, and it was almost impossible to learn it in the time we had to, I mean, they were, we stood for half an hour singing, it was a half hour concert. I'm sorry, I'm getting off the track here. <laughs> but people complain, oh, a, you know, reform worship is so boring. No, it's not. It's actually much more engaging. It's actually much more engaging and edifying. Like I say, there's nothing that will make you appreciate what you have more than not having it one Sunday. Well, let's turn to our scripture reading. We are racing toward the end of 1 Timothy. Uh, This week is the second to last. Um, Next week, I I believe uh, Daryl is going to be preaching, and then the following week we will finish 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here we end the reading of God's word. 
Father, we come to you before this message, and we pray that you would take the passage of Scripture that we've read, that your Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts, that we might be given understanding and insight into the wisdom and the goodness of this passage, and that you would guide our hearts not only to understand, but also to apply and obey your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it might seem that these three topics, and Paul covers three things. He talks about false teachers, he talks about being content, and then he talks about the love of money. It might seem that those are three unrelated things, but there's actually a thread that runs through them. The false teachers, uh, apart from all the other damage that they cause in the church, and Paul lists some of the, the bad effects, the debris field that results from, from the uh, introduction of false teaching. He says also, that by the way, they think that, that this is a means of gain. And then he goes into the, the, the fact that we should be content. And then in opposition to that, he talks about the love of money. So there is, actually is a thread that connects these three topics, false teachers, contentment, and the love of money. We are going to work our way through the the passage and begin with those who teach differently. Paul says, watch out for them. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, and then in verse 4 he goes and he is puffed up and he talks about the effects of these and what kind of people they are. But I want to focus on that first statement that Paul makes. It's a, a condition here. If anyone teaches, if, if someone comes into the church, if someone comes up before you someday, some, someone else besides Pastor Darrell or myself or other, uh, other people, someone might come up or, or you might hear somebody on the radio or see somebody on television. Uh, and they teach something different. Now, I want you to think about the implication of saying, if they teach a different doctrine, because that warning or that statement assumes that there is a standard doctrine or a standard of doctrine that we should already be familiar with, so that if somebody comes and says something different, you can spot it right away. You can spot it right away. You can spot the counterfeit because you know the authentic so well. That's the assumption that Paul is making here. That's the assumption. It's really a challenge to us to get to step up our game a bit, to, to be so familiar with biblical teaching. And, and Paul stresses that this is the teaching that has come to us from Jesus Christ. Somebody preaches and declares to you something different than what Jesus taught. He also says that this, this true doctrine, as opposed to the false teaching, the different teaching, this true doctrine leads to godliness, and false teaching does not lead to godliness. There, there are standards, Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. If it produces good, healthy fruit, it's a testimony to the fact that it's good, healthy teaching. If it produces withered, sour, uneatable fruit, well, you need to throw the fruit out, and you need to get rid of that false teacher 
or not listen to them any longer. The assumption that we should know already what Jesus taught his church and what is in accordance with godliness and what is in accordance with the pattern of sound words that we have received, uh, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's an assumption that there is a fixed truth that should not be, we should not stray from that truth. I have to make an application here, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. You know, we rely on several schools to provide always the next generation of ministers. We call these schools seminaries. Seminaries have an identity crisis. Are they, are they institutions that are established for the training of pastors? Or are they institutions of higher education? And those two, those two identities are not always compatible. There's a temptation in every seminary I have ever worked with or been to or, or gotten to know, there's always a temptation to stray from that original vision of preparing ministers for the gospel ministry and to stray into becoming part of the respectable educational establishment and focusing on higher-level degrees of education. Now, there's a place for those. I'm not saying there's no place for those, but it's a matter of identity. Why do you start school? And if they stray, if they move into that other field where their primary identity is that we are an institution of higher learning and we grant advanced degrees. There's an entirely different culture. You probably have heard of the, a part of this culture. It's called the publish or perish. Professors have to publish books and they have to publish papers in journals. And by the way, that is a great way of getting the school's name out, right? And enhancing the reputation of the school. They have to do that. And in order to do that, they are always coming up with new ideas, a new insight, a new perspective, a new way of looking at a passage. And at that point, the yellow and red warning lights should start flashing. Christian pastors, Christian theologians, let me put this very bluntly, we are not called to be innovators. We are called to be faithful stewards of the truth that we have received. A school that stresses the classic historic reform teaching as embodied in reformed confessions is to be prized and appreciated. Paul basically is assuming we we have been given a body of truth. In different passages, he calls it a treasure, uh, a, 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 a good deposit that has been given to the church. He talks about the pattern. Uh, here he, he uses the pattern or the, the sound words of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
There are other passages where Paul refers to the body of truth that has been committed to the church, and the task of the pastor is to defend and teach and promote this truth. If there is something different, something is wrong. If there is something different, something is wrong. (laughs) We always like to say, what could possibly go wrong? Right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, Paul does tell us some of the things that go wrong. First of all, what kind of a person does this? In verse 4, he says he's puffed up with conceit. He thinks he knows better. He thinks what he has to say is more important than what Jesus taught his church. He thinks his insights are, are more interesting or enlightening. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. There's a, there's a, a, by the way, the irony. He is puffed up with conceit because he thinks he knows better, but the fact is he understands nothing. He's a stranger to the truth. He has abandoned the truth for his own conceits. He has an healthy, unhealthy craving for controversy. Perhaps you've known people like this. They, they, they like to pick a fight. Why do they like to get involved in controversies? Well, you know what? There's a little three-letter word. It comes from the Latin language. It's E-G-O. Ego. The almighty I. Why do we like controversy? Why are there some people who are always drawn to controversies? And many, very often, these are people who inject new ideas and new teachings into the scripture, into their teaching. It is because in controversy, they like to prove themselves. You see, the false teacher has an eye problem. His ego is at the center his ego is at the center. Who is at the center of the good pattern, the good words that we have taught, been taught? Who, is, who does Paul refer to? Paul, even in this passage, does not primarily talk about himself. Who is he talking about? Christ. The sound words that we have received from Jesus Christ, that has been taught to us from Jesus Christ. He is the prophet the priest and the king in past times and in many different ways. God has spoken to us by the prophets, but in these latter days, he has spoken to us by his son. They stir the pot of controversy. They create controversy and quarrels about words, producing envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is all what I call the debris field, the, the, the destruction zone that forms around a false teacher, someone who teaches something different. So brothers and sisters, how do we fight this? First of all, know the truth so well that you can spot the counterfeit. Know the truth so well. Devote yourselves to knowing what God's Word says. Devote yourselves, and I'll take it maybe a step further. 
devote yourselves to the historic Reformed teachings that have been proven correct and biblical over the centuries. From the time of the Reformation, even before the Reformation, the Reformation discovered very little that was new. The Reformation recovered what was old. Know these things. Immerse yourselves in these things, and it will be a powerful defense against false teachers who come with their own ideas and create destruction in the church. Division. There will be parties identifying with this teacher and that teacher. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Well, they weren't false teachers, but you notice how easy it is for people to to be led into a, a, a factional mindset, a, a party spirit. Paul ends his description here saying that these people also think that they're, they're teaching their quote-unquote ministry is a means of gain. It's a way for them to make money. Always beware. Someone offers you a teaching and then has their hand out for more money. That's one of the signs of a false teacher. They realize they're in this for the money. They're in this for gain. They're in this because of another self-centered reason. That money, that gain, might be a gain in influence. It might be a gain in popularity, in their name, recognition, and but uh, particularly in financial rewards. Many years ago, the network ABC did an expose of some very popular television evangelists, which I think is a very unfortunate term to use. Um, one in particular was all over the television and, and claimed to have prophetic utterances, claimed to have healing powers, claimed all these things which are contrary to Scripture, claimed uh, had, had very odd views about the nature of God and who Jesus was and so forth. And yet, what? He was on TV. The money machine was working. He had houses around the world. He had boats. He had airplanes. He had everything money could buy. He had built himself a little empire, nice empire, but he built it by teaching false doctrine. Beware. Peter writes something similar to this in 2 Peter chapter 2, one, verses 1 and 3. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Beware the false teachers. Beware of those who teach different 
truths from what the Bible has given us, from what Jesus has taught us. The foundational, uh, the foundation stones of the church are laid in the ministries of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Do not leave your godly inheritance of truth for the mess of pottage of someone else's opinions. Which leads us to this. Now we're going to talk about money. Wasn't there a song several years ago about money? Money, 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 money. Everybody loves money, don't they? Well, you shouldn't. But why do we love money? Part money represents wealth, and wealth represents to us many different things. It gives us a sense of security in the world. It, if, it, it insulates us from some of the hardships of, of life. Money, money is a means to a greater influence and popularity. Money is the means of greater possessions and comforts. Money is power in many respects. Paul writes this, the desire to be rich. Remember, you need to pay attention to the way Paul puts this. It's not money that's the root of all evil, but it is the desire for money that is the root of many evils, which is simply another way of saying that the desire for money becomes idolatry. It becomes a false worship. But who are we really worshiping in our desire for wealth? We are worshiping self because it's what money can do for me that drives me, that motivates me. It's what money can do for me that causes me to love it and causes me to become an idolater. Money itself is simply a means of exchanging value. If I want to buy a loaf of bread, which represents a certain amount of labor and a certain amount of raw material and so forth, that all has value. And I give the grocery store my money in exchange for the value of the bread. And we agree in this transaction that the money I give is about is equivalent to the value of the bread with a little set aside for some profit. Uh, for the for all involved down the line, we when you buy something, you're agreeing to that exchange of value. But when we love it, the desire to be rich, Paul says, or the love of money, is a misplaced affection for ourselves rather than for God and for others. Instead of focusing on the love of money, the desire for money, we should be focusing on the biblical teachings of stewardship the right use of our wealth. And the Bible is full of teachings on stewardship. The love of money or the pursuit of wealth, the desire for money, goes along with a, a warning that, that Paul wrote to Timothy. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Notice he put those two together. Lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, Paul had a really high view of human nature, didn't he? He really is lifting us up. Paul, why don't you say something encouraging? Well, Paul would say something encouraging. All of this can be forgiven and set right in Christ. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And Paul ends that by saying, avoid such people. Lovers of self and lovers of money. I don't think it's by chance that those two were put right next to each other in this passage. Paul warns Timothy that this love of of money is a trap. It's a trap. It's deceptive. First of all, you can't take it with you. You came with nothing, you'll leave with nothing. Money will not protect you from death. He says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptations, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's the flip side of all those things that we think money can do for us, our wealth, our influence, our popularity, our, our comforts. The fact is that while you may achieve some of that, you are also adding to yourself all kinds of trouble all kinds of ruin and destruction. Senseless and harmful desires that go along with it that plunge us into ruin and destruction. He even goes so far and says that this is a cause of apostasy among believers. And and when he says this, you realize he is focusing on those who are, have professed their faith, who, may, who are part of the visible church of Jesus Christ, he says it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Through this unhealthy and destructive desire that is also a part of self-worship, they have actually betrayed the faith and walk away from it and pierce themselves with many pangs, with many sorrows, another the old King James says. Is it possible for a Christian to lose his salvation? No, we don't believe that that's possible for a true Christian. But the church is always, has always been, and yet continues to be, and will always be, the visible church will always be something of a mixed multitude a blend of true believers and those who have made outward professions who are like the seed that springs up quickly, but as soon as the heat of the day or the birds or the, or the cares of the world or whatever come along, they, they wither and die. For a brief time, they put on the good face and they blend right in with the church But something happens along the way. God is constantly weeding his garden. And providentially, he brings up and into people's lives perhaps uh, this unhealthy love of, of money that exposes the unbelief that has always been 
down deep in their hearts. And they have to make a choice. I can focus on this present age and the wealth of this age and the security of this age and the power of this age and the the comforts of this age, or I can do what Jesus said, and that is what? Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do not seek to lay up treasures on earth, but seek treasure in heaven. But the pull of this present age and the pull of all those things is so overwhelming for some that even though they may have professed faith, they are drawn back into this present age and this world. Paul says heartbreakingly at the end of 2 Timothy, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present age. Do you love the world? Do you love the things of the world? Do not love this world, nor the things of the world. They are doomed to pass away. They are a fleeting vapor. But the age to come will never pass. And the glories of heaven will never be dimmed. The treasure that you lay up there, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Those treasures are reserved for you eternally in heaven. And the greatest treasure of heaven, brothers and sisters, by, by, in contrast, everything else fades to nothing, fades to black. The greatest treasure of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What is your only comfort in life and in death? I'll I'll abbreviate the answer. He belongs to me, and I belong to him. What is your greatest possession? He belongs to me. I belong to him. This is the segue into the next contentment. Contentment. If I belong to him and he belongs to me, Can I be content with his providence? When we talk about being discontent, what are we really saying? We're really saying is, I'm angry at God for not giving me everything I want. But he has given you everything you need. And for most of us, he's given us much more than we need. Which again drives us back to that theme of stewardship. If we have bread, if we have clothing, with these we will be content. Be content with God. Be content with his providence. His providence is wiser than our craving in this world. He is the God who knows the end and the beginning and the end of everything. He knows the beginning and the end of your life. He knows what is best. He knows how to shape us and mold us to be conformed to the image of his Son. He knows and he 
forms us, he molds us in his providential leading and provision for us. It is a great gain, and Paul says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a gain that's in heaven. It's a gain that's not measured in dollars and cents. But it is great gain. The gain of this world can be corrupted. It can be lost. The markets go up. The markets come down. Moth and rust and thieves destroy. But treasures in heaven, that's that great gain coming from godliness and contentment and seeking God's kingdom first, that great gain can never be taken away. Part of the, the great challenge of the Christian life is to that is is that task of refocusing our attention from this world and this age and the things associated with it, which we are constantly reminded in Scripture, this is passing away. It is ephemeral. It's a mist. And as the heat of the day comes, that mist dissipates and it's gone. But that which is to come is eternal. It will never pass away. Jesus spoke to a wealthy man, this goes beyond really contentment. A young man who came to him who had great wealth, and the man said, Jesus, great teacher, what, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. The young man says, well, I have kept all the commandments since my youth. Jesus said, yet one thing you lack, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. Now the man has a decision. He has a crisis, which is that, that point at which decisions must be made. If I really want eternal life and inherit God's kingdom, I have to lose what I have in this life. And we know the story. He couldn't do it. He couldn't walk away from his wealth. He went away sorrowing because he could not do that. His desire for the things of this age were stronger than any desire he might have had for eternity. Jesus said after that, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Now, I, when I was a child, I would thought, wow, a, a little eye of a needle and a camel? No, that's impossible. Well, that's true. But it was also probably referring to a gate in the wall of Jerusalem that was a very, very small gate. You had to bend down, and the gate was called the eye of the needle. And it was still impossible for a camel to get through that. Can you be content with God? That's a gauge of your relationship with God. Discontent is basically ang you're angry at God for not giving you what you want. 
But God is not a genie in a bottle where you get to rub the bottle and make your three wishes. He is sovereign Lord of the universe. He does not serve you, but he is generous and good. You serve him. These three themes that Paul weaves together in this passage really get to the heart of what he mentions before. When he talks about the, the, the teachers who bring in different teachings, and he says these teachings do not conform to godliness. Paul is concerned about godliness. Our theology should lead to godliness. Our practice should, should mirror or should, should show forth our increasing desire for godliness. That's the goal in the Christian life. We glorify God by the pursuit of godliness. Let's take these thoughts to heart. We're at the end of Paul's letter, and very often in Paul's letters, he kind of brings a lot of things together, a lot of short statements together, final warnings, final greetings, and so forth. But let's not lose sight of how important these things are, even though they come at the end of the letter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would watch over us and, and bless us as we consider these words from Scripture. We pray that you would drive these words into our hearts, that you would teach us, Lord, how important it is to be content with you, content with your providence, to focus on the treasures in heaven, not on treasures on earth, to beware of those who teach anything different than what we have received down through the ages and through the prophets and the apostles and Jesus Christ himself. We pray, Father, that you would give us discernment into these things. In Jesus' name, amen.